Oh, good morning. Uh, and welcome back to our series on what comes next, uh, moving forward in your faith. Uh, we, you're going to hear from multiple pastors over this month on, on different practices, different rhythms, different habits that we have uh, to find Jesus in our everyday. Last week, Andrew Mills led us in Sabbath, and, uh, and the challenge was to live differently for one day uh, each week. And, uh, and this, this morning, we're going to look at, uh, at economics, at money, and uh, one of the things that, uh, that God is challenging uh, in me in. Uh, what I see here is, is within these different patterns, if it's Sabbath, if it's economics, if, the, if it's the ones to come, we're actually looking at the kingdom of God here and now on earth, a society where, where, where God rules, where death is overcome, where sickness is healed, uh, a place where people find home and shelter um, in good or in difficult times. Uh, so today we're going to look at the theology of potluck. I want to look at what the Bible says about potlucks and about the economy. Uh, if you remember one thing today, uh, I want that to be that looking at our culture today with the lens of a potluck, uh, why does the kingdom of God look like a potluck or a really good party? Uh, what might economics uh, of the Bible, uh, why might that might look different today? Uh, rather than what I was trained in within university. Uh, I'm going to take you back to, uh, to uh, 15 years ago. Jen and I are newly married, uh, living in North Bay, driving a, a very old Plymouth Acclaim. And if you don't know what a Plymouth Acclaim is, that's a car that my grandpa drove. It was pretty hard on a 24-year-old's ego to be driving that car, but it got us from A to B. Uh, we were both recent grads. We had significant credit card debt. We had uh, student loans. Uh, we had a new mortgage that we were, we were just buying a house. And uh, we were on a very tight budget. And uh, we lived very close to a lake during that time. And I remember one of the favorite things that we would do is go for walks on the lake. We would end up always at a Dairy Queen where we would share a large blizzard. Uh, because quite honestly, I could buy a large blizzard for $4 and two smalls cost us seven. So just trying to save a couple dollars. Things were tight. Um, I remember during these days when things were this tight of saying, if only we can pay off our credit cards, if only we can be student loan free, uh, if only uh, our mortgage is paid off, uh, then I will feel happy, then I will feel secure, then I will have arrived. Um, maybe even if I can have three or six months savings set aside so I can have an emergency fund, uh, then I will have security and then I will have enough. Um, 16 years later, here we are. Uh, a lot of these goals are accomplished. I find ourselves still having heated discussions over money uh, because I have bought into the view that money will solve my problems. Uh, if I no longer have debt, I will be happy. I will be secure. And this starts to remind me of what I learned in university. Uh, in my business degree in university, we spent a significant amount of time looking at, at economics. And economics is concerned about the production, the distribution, the consumptions of goods and services. It studies how individuals, how businesses, how governments, how nations um, all view these things and how they're going to allocate resources uh, to satisfy their needs and wants. And, and really, at the end, they're determining how these groups are going to organize and coordinate it for maximum output. Uh, let me try to put this in a, in a different way, I guess, is uh, what I've been taught through this is um, money is about individual success and security. It's about satisfying my needs and my wants. I've been told that the target for my financial success is when I accumulate enough, I will finally have security and success. 
I want to introduce you uh, as we to the to the kingdom of God and the view of, of economics from the kingdom of God's perspective. As we do this, I'm reminded, and what comes to mind is the is the story of, of Nar- Narnia that C.S. Lewis was writing. Our kids are currently reading the books this summer. We're watching the movies together as a family. And uh, and I think of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where we've got the characters Peter, Lucy, Susan, and, and Edmund, um, who are all in this, who are all in this movie, who are all in this story. And they enter into a wardrobe in the bedroom, and they walk into the wardrobe, they stumble in it, and they come out the other end, the back end of the wardrobe, and they end up in Narnia. And in Narnia, they are introduced to animals that talk. They're in a foreign land. And this foreign land has, has a new reality, has a new culture. Um, it has a new authority and new customs. Uh, and they, as they enter this land, they have to learn these. And this reminds me, just like Narnia, the kingdom of God that we are a part of, that Jesus invites us into, has new customs, new reality, new authorities that we are, we are trying to figure out and learn about and, and become. Um, and, and Jesus starts to use different terms when he describes the kingdom of God. He says, the kingdom of God is like, and he tells a story and he paints a picture. He uses words of joy, of freedom, of, of excitement. And, uh, and more so, it's about living uh, for others rather than ourself. And as I, as I read the scriptures about what, what the kingdom of God might say uh, about money, about economics, about my view, um, to be honest with you this morning, I'm, I'm a little bit scared because the Bible's approach to economics is, is extremely foolish. Um, and actually, I think it's, it's completely implausible. Um, but before I, before I answer that question, I, I want to introduce that economics is, a, is, a, is an issue of, of worship or worship is an economic issue. Uh, why? Because from Genesis to Revelation, we read story after story uh, about God's primary quality. Uh, one of them is his lavish generosity. Um, we are made in the image of this generous God. We have God's DNA within us that we are actually designed to reflect that same generosity. The generosity where he would give his son to die. Um, and it's a sign of our family resemblance uh, to this king. Giving is what we do best. It's what God does best. Giving is one of the ways that signals and solidifies our allegiance and our dependence to God, our King. Generosity is one of the first ways in the Old Testament where people could actually express their worship to God. They brought their first fruits. They harvested things. They brought things to church uh, to show generosity, to celebrate, to worship. Because worship is an economic issue because uh, our generosity actually changes people's lives. It sets people live free. People can actually live differently through generosity. However, idolatry is also an economic issue. And we're going to look at 1 Kings 18. And, and, and during this story uh, in 1 Kings, uh, we see the Israelite people, the Christians, God's actual chosen people, in a moment, are worshiping Baal. They're worshiping an idol. Um, during this time, they haven't turned their backs on God. They still trust him. They still believe in him. They're still tithing. They're still following his commands. Um, however, Baal is seen as the, as the economic God. Uh, in, a, in a time of farming, Baal was the God who brought rain. He was the God who blessed the earth. And, and during this time, Baal was actually almost seen as an insurance policy, where if, if, we, if we did this to Baal, then rain will come. And what happens is, is God sends Elijah back onto the scene during this time. And he says, you know what? We need to stop going between two 
two different gods here. You need to choose one. You're limping. So what does God do? He chooses to mock Baal. When Baal promises rain, what does God do? He brings drought. And near the end of the story, we see 450 prophets gathering together um, in this test of who is the real God. And Elijah is representing God. And they say, let the real God light the fire of this, uh, of this altar of wood and sacrifice. So what happens? 450 prophets call on Baal, no fire. Elijah says, bring on the water, douse the firewood, and he prays and the fire lights. And it also consumes the wood of the altar offered to Baal. And uh, so what is this? This is where it gets a little bit personal for me. Um, See, during this time, money is an insurance policy for me. Money is competing for my trust, my allegiance, and my worship to God. I'm sick that I actually have to say this, that in my past, as a Christian, I have had an idol. Um, and it, sticks its, it still sticks its ugly head up in my life from time to time. I have put my trust uh, in money. And you, when I talked about our marriage earlier, you saw that during that time, uh, I had thoughts that if I had enough, I would be free. Well, 16 years later, uh, money still hasn't come through on some of those promises. I still don't feel secure. I still don't feel successful. Um, now, I want to be careful as we talk a little bit of money, and please hear me on this. There are so many misunderstandings uh, on how we have talked about money as a church, and, and I really want to be careful. It's not about, um, you know, money being wrong. But let's see some of the warnings uh, that are in the Bible. Luke 16, 13 says that you can't serve two masters, for you're going to love one and you're, you're going to hate one. Uh, you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You see, in my own life, I've tried to seek security in money. Even though I have more money today than my parents have had, than my grandparents have had, I still am chasing security. 1 Timothy 6, 9 says, But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires and plunge them into ruin and destruction. Stop for a minute. Do you actually believe this? Do I actually believe this? Do I actually believe that the, that wanting to get rich um, inevitably causes destruction? Well, Paul goes on to, to explain a little more, and he says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, that some people who crave money have wandered from true faith uh, and have pierced themselves with many sorrows. You see, the love of money, the love of security that money might bring, in the past, um, I started to desire more money and thinking the more I chased money, the more secure I would be. Uh, because deep down, I honestly believe that I would never have enough. I had a mindset of scarcity. So am I saying that money is sinful? No. Um, you see, we, God calls us to be creative. God calls us to flourish. Uh, that's not a restrictive God who's saying none. But what I found in my own life is when I did these things out of a motive for selfish gain, selfish ambition, that's where money started to become an idol for me. Now, why, why might I believe this? Where are these roots coming from my life? Well, if I look at what culture teaches me, culture teaches me that my retirement plan is $2 million. I need to have $2 million to retire. I need to have $80,000 for my kid's education. I deserve a vacation. I need to have a smartwatch that's going to cost me $500, $600 for, um, to tell me the weather, to tell me email uh, that I'm probably not even going to read or respond to anyways. Um, so am I saying that these things are wrong? Am I saying a financial plan is wrong? No. 
Um, but deep down, one layer below that financial plan is the mindset in my own mind of scarcity. I will never have $2 million. I will never have with three kids $240,000 for their education. But it's the truths that I start to believe. Um, and, uh, and, and what I'm asking myself during this time is, am I consuming uh, things, money, for my own selfish desires and wants? Because money might actually make me happy. Money might make me happy in some ways, you know, because money, money buys cows, cows make milk, milk makes ice cream, and ice cream makes me happy, right? That's about as happy as money's actually going to make me at the end of the day. But joking aside, God is generous, and he wants us to be generous. And sometimes my love of money robs me from the generosity and the opportunity that God has for me. And as we, as we explore this, I start to see uh, other passages in the scripture. As we look at Acts 4, uh, 32 to 34, we see uh, during this time, we actually looked at part of this passage in our We the Church series, where the people during this time sold their possessions so that there would be no poor among them. You see, Jesus says we have to love our neighbor. And I get a sense that God's design for humanity is actually to be part of a community, to care for one another, to be dependent on one another. Um, that I need you and you need me. Um, however, I have been taught my whole life to be independent, to not be a drain to my friends, to not be a drain to my family. Uh, while there's truth in this, God's design is that we're probably to be interdependent because this independence just sends us down the rabbit trail of, of more security, more wealth accumulation for ourselves. Because every month we do our own budget, we look at things, and what do I find at the end of the month? That after I've, I've fed our family, I've clothed our family, I've put some into savings to get to this $2 million goal, um, at the end of the month, I really don't have any extra because I need to put so much away for myself. And I believe in scarcity that I will never actually have enough. But when I read the Old Testament and the New Testament, I start to see little subtle hints about, about communities matter. That individual matters, that individual lives matter, and also communities matter. That we're to do this together. So I'm going to toss out there the theology of potluck. Um, the idea that God wants all of us to be in a position where we can bring a plate to the table. A table where, where all are equal and all can come. Where do I get this concept? Well, I started to get subtle hints of it from different stories of the Old Testament. Uh, for example, read Leviticus 25 that, uh, uh, that talks about uh, the year of Jubilee. And actually right before this is Sabbath. So we're kind of following the Leviticus story here where we're talking about Sabbath. Now we're talking about, um, about the year of Jubilee. And what we hear here is God's design. Some of God's law actually has his heartbeat behind it for his people in, in this story that talks about, uh, you know, forgiving people's debts. That if you haven't paid off your debt in seven years, it's forgiven. Uh, land is returned to its owner. That, that the rich can't actually buy land off people and impoverish people during this time. Because you see, what God cared about this time is, is the wealthy, is the rich taking advantage of the poor. God said, no, you are a community. You are to care for one another. And, uh, and that excites me when I start to see that. Now, would I love it if we announced the year of Jubilee and all of my debts were forgiven? Absolutely. I think we should do that in 2020 still. Um, but as we read the scriptures, we start to see uh, this heartbeat of, of, of what God is doing, that he loves feasts, that he loves parties. Remember Jesus turning water into wine and, uh, and kind of continuing on with, with this theme of party and God's design for potlucks. Uh, we look at 1 Corinthians 11, 
23 to, to 26. And this is uh, Paul writing, uh, talking about the Lord's Supper. And at this time, the Lord's Supper was actually a meal. It was a feast. Um, it wasn't this, you know, wafer and juice that we do now, but, but it was a supper. And they did this to remember Jesus. This, the same thing where we, where we remember his absolute generosity of him giving his life. But people were called together in equality at this table. They were one people of God, all equal, all adopted into this family, all eating as one family across lines, lines of ethnicity, age, class, wealth, Christian, not Christian, children, adults. Um, however, during this time, the wealthy were paying for the actual meal. Uh, they were being treated as VIPs, better food, better seating, better treatment. And they ended up not treating the Lord's Supper as, as a potluck communal meal. Um, and Paul didn't have kind words for them. He said, do you really want to disgrace the church um, and shame the poor? Ouch. What I love about communion today is that we all eat the same cracker. Even though some of us can afford a whole loaf of bread, we still choose equality to do this together because remembering Jesus is what matters. So this is my potluck theology. I'm going to try to live each day looking for ways to help people bring a plate to the table. I'm not talking about some lame church potluck of the past. Um, I'm talking about a community feast. Uh, if you recall, potlucks of the past, right? It was like, hurry up, get to the front of the line because there's a few good dishes. And if you're there, you might get a slice of the cheesecake. You might get a piece of the KFC chicken from the bucket. You might get a slice of pizza, depending on what people brought. Uh, but if you're at the back of the line, you got a dish of the, of the who knows what casserole. What was even in that thing? I don't know. Um, but... Uh, but as a church, as Christians, we are called to celebrate this feast. Um, and I think we're in a unique place to bring in new economic practices into our, the way that we live, into our community, uh, where we don't gather wealth for our own pleasure, for our own selfish ambition, um, or where we take a, advantage of people uh, for wealth accumulation, like, like some of us do in, in businesses. Um, and uh, there are many examples of, of how we are actually more impoverishing uh, the poor uh, through some of our practices. And it's interesting. So as an example, our church uh, during COVID actually just got the final report of what we call the HALO report. This was a research organization that looked at Bethany, looked at our finances uh, to see how we were spending some of our money. We got the report during COVID, so we're going to release uh, some of the findings in the fall. Uh, but what it is, is we looked at what the impact of the church is having in our community of Niagara. I don't know if you know this, but as a church, we don't pay corporate tax. We don't pay property tax. Uh, we get 70% of all the HST back. And, uh, and people, when they donate to our church, often get 30 to 50% uh, back of what they gave on their personal tax. So it's very clear that, that there is lost revenue potential for the governments uh, because of churches. And what this study looks at is... is uh, is answers the question, you know, is, is, it, is it costing the, the governments more money to have churches or are we doing more of an impact? So we looked at Bethany Pacific and our tax impact is $1.2 million. If you look at the property tax, corporate tax, all those things together, there's about $1.2 million of lost tax potential for our governments. However, our impact in our community is estimated at $10 million. So there is a nine times impact in our community than what the governments have lost out. We are impacting our community nine times more than what, uh, what the governments are missing out. 
We also looked at our donations, and it answered the question, if people are giving money to the church, how are we using that? And what we were, what we were looking at is the, is the programs we're offering. Because of our volunteers, because of, of the effectiveness of our programs and what we're doing in the community and the impact we're making, we have found out that for every dollar given to Bethany, there's a $4.38 impact in the Niagara region. That it would cost the municipality $4.38 for every dollar to run one of our programs. Um, and that's great news, and that should be celebrated. Am I saying this, that you give more money to Bethany because we're so efficient? No. What I'm doing is celebrating the generosity of Christians, that this is the heartbeat. This is, this is the way we see economics as Christians, that we want to change lives. People matter. Communities matter. And and I believe that individually, we all make our personal impact, what we're doing in our lives, in our community, but collectively as well, as a church, as a body of Christ, when we harness some of this together, we can make significant impacts in our community. Examples of this, El Salvador, uh, building hundreds of homes in El Salvador and actually changing the future uh, trajectory of someone's life just by having a safe house over their head and not worrying about the roof caving in uh, changes lives. Benevolence, we've been helping people through COVID with small, tangible ways just to, just to help them uh, through a very, very short season of their life. What about our ministry of welcome? Did, like we've brought over 50 refugees uh, into uh, Ontario, and, uh, and this ministry has actually changed people's lives. And because of the generosity of collectively doing this, we've been able to give people a second chance and saving them from some of the horrific stories that we hear from them. Also during COVID, uh, we, we gave more money to the Niagara Life Center, uh, who does counseling, one-on-one -on -one counseling with people. Because during this time, people want to be set free from some of their habits and, and hang-ups. And this is actually changing their family, their marriage, their children, the, the community structure that they have. And, and it's been exciting to partner with, with, with Niagara Life Center and how they're, and how they're doing that. I say this because as Christians, we deeply care for our community. See, Jesus asks us as individuals to flourish, as communities to flourish. And I use the word flourish because um, some of us have been taught in the past that, that the accumulation of wealth is wrong, right? But as we see God's creativity that he birthed within us to, to develop things, to grow things, to start creative businesses, uh, wealth comes with that for many people. And, and God's desire for flourishment is his heartbeat. Now, the subtleness where, idol, where, the, where the idol has come up in my own life is, is when I flourish, sometimes I believe that's for my own selfish ambition, for my own selfish gain, for my own security, my own success. But God's desire for flourishment is for the community, that we would, we would see no more poor among us. So what is my next step in following Jesus as we look at it through this series? It's to embrace the challenge that Jesus gives us to aim our economic life towards the love of God and towards the love of our neighbors, not selfish in interests. God's design is to welcome every person to this potluck party of Jesus where we can all participate no matter what we bring. And if somebody can't bring something, we fix that. Uh, and we anticipate those needs. The question I'm asking myself how, is, how am I helping others flourish? Am I contributing to them? Am I giving them a hand up? Uh, I think sometimes the real idol in my life is when I view money, uh, my own financial security, so much that it comes at a cost where I can't participate in helping someone else. Someone else bring a dish to the table. Someone else participate 
Um, and I'm ashamed of myself, if I'm completely vulnerable, when I look at our finances at the end of the month and I didn't because I spent money on my own selfish ambitions. Not because that is wrong, but when I think that those things are actually going to give me the security and the success. So I submit to you the theology of potluck. Um, as a theology, no, but um, as a lens to look through, maybe as a pair of glasses, as I look at my own table, do I see diversity? Do I see poor, rich, young, old, uh, the haves, the have-nots, the, the diversity in ethnicity? Um, because I know in our community that, that poverty exists and that there are people who cannot participate. And so how am I helping them flourish? So this week, our challenge is simply, where have I helped somebody flourish this week? Um, and my next step, personally, is to go hard after this idol. I have dealt with this idol in the past. It keeps rearing its head every once in a while. Um, how I combat the idol of greed, the idol of money in my own life, is by being more generous. It's the only way I know how to combat this idol, is to try to be more generous, to put people's needs sometimes above my own. Do I need that second cup of coffee? Can I find little subtle ways to give rather than to receive? So when Jen and I uh, first introduced this into our marriage many years ago, it was a simple formula. The first one was priority. We are going to make generosity a priority in our life. It's the first thing we do. We, we look at that and we say, we're not giving out of excess at the end of the month because quite honestly, there never will be any excess. We're gonna do it first. The second one is a percentage. We, we decide how much we're going to give away as a percentage of income. Because my income changes and we make more, we make less, it goes all over the place. But we commit to a percentage so that when I do make more, we give more rather than spend it on ourselves. Um, and then thirdly, it's progressive. And this is the hard one for us. Each year we commit to giving more as a percentage of our income away every year so that uh, we continue to stretch ourselves. Why? Because it, it helps me, it pushes me in two ways. One, it combats my need to accumulate and to spend money on myself. But secondly, it motivates me to make more money because I want to be more generous. I want to give more away. And that desire for me to give more away really does push me. And it's, it's hard to do this. I'm not saying it's easy. And what's freeing about this for us is, is it can be a little, it can be a lot, it doesn't matter. But what it's doing for me is it's combating the idol of greed. So this week, as we look at our own lives, are, are we seeing, um, a, are we seeing uh, um, in my own life the cultivating of a culture of party, of potluck? Do they see me contributing and sharing with others? When they look at Andrew, do they see selfish ambition or do they see generosity? Um, I want to help people. I want to help people contribute to this party. So let's take a moment and pray. So Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the new way that you give us um, uh, ways to look uh, at the kingdom of God, that your ways are different than our ways, and you are shaping us into that. So help me. Help me to combat this idol of greed, of money that's within my own life, and help me to participate in this community of togetherness, this community of family, where we help one another uh, participate in this party. So Jesus, help us. In your name we pray. Amen.